What I'm personally struggling with is trust. And I say that because I've had it help me with a handful of Excel things that it didn't quite do correctly. It's important to remember that AI is trained on a bunch of people who did that manual work in the first place and built all the building blocks from which AI can learn. That's that gut feel element that I feel like there's still just this human component that we know from our experience that would bring a great perspective to this potentially AI produced model. Hello, and welcome to Tech for Finance, where we help finance professionals leverage technology to level up their lives. I'm your host, Adam Shilton, and in this episode, we're going to be chatting with Chris Riley. Chris is founder of both Mission Capital Consulting and Financial Modeling Education, where he provides custom-built M&A and FP&A models for businesses and teaches advanced financial modeling to FP&A and PE professionals. After holding positions in consulting, corporate finance, and mid-market private equity, Chris decided to build his own business so he could spend more time with his wife and three kids. Chris lives in Colorado, which is a big outdoor state, and in his spare time likes golf, general fitness, and also video games. Before we start, if you like what you hear today, please make sure to subscribe to Tech for Finance on your favorite podcast platform and on YouTube. But for now, thanks for joining me today, Chris. It's really good to have you on. Yeah, thanks so much, Adam. Thrilled to, thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. No worries. No worries. So it's um, morning for you, evening for me. Uh, so no, it's, it's all good. I'll try not to, to keep you too long in the, in, the, in the middle of the day or working towards the middle of the day for you. So I guess getting straight into it to the good stuff. Uh, I mean, the, the, the point that stands out there is you basically deciding that you, you want to control your own schedule so that you can, you know, spend more time with the people that matter most to you. And that's, that's amazing. I mean, I've got two kids myself as, as we were speaking earlier. And a lot of people are a little bit scared at making that move, even if they're thinking about starting their own business. So I guess the first question is for anybody that's thinking about going it alone, what, what would you say? Yeah, it's a good question. I feel like actually now is the best time, at least in my career for somebody to give that a shot, because we now live in this economy where you can have full-time work, but you also have theoretically some room on the side to pursue some kind of passion project that can be complementary to your full-time income. So there's a nice testing ground that's a, that's more acceptable now than I think than was acceptable pre COVID. So I think if you have the time and the interest, it's a great idea to just start building a passion project in your off hours. See if you can get a little bit of traction. Um, for me, like tactically speaking, I've, I found that posting content that I was really good at on LinkedIn was a quick way for me to gain traction and sort of like measure my results, um, as opposed to just like not really knowing where to start. So that was a great way to test the market and very easy and low lift, something you could do in your off time. And the only thing I'd say is if you are working for an employer, depending on the success of your part-time project, at some point you may need to get a blessing or disclosure from them that you can work on self-promotion in addition to uh, working full-time on and your, your full-time role. So that's really the only tricky part, but I'd say it's a perfect time to try it. You know, everybody's a little bit more flexible with lifestyle. We have a lot more technology in terms of communication and scalability than we did even a couple years ago. And again, if I was doing it all over, that's probably how I would do it. Uh, what I ended up doing was, was different. I actually didn't have a job at the time. I was just trying to build my own thing right during COVID and I was actually pretty desperate. I was doing hourly work and I was trying to scale at the same time with no backbone of, of full-time income. I, I left my private equity job. And so it ended, it ended up working in the end. And sometimes that, that killer instinct of like, I have to make this work is also good. Um, and I felt like that forced me to push through and like make things work in times when if I had a bailout, I may not have. But I'd say a much safer route now is let's take the full time thing, presuming you have enough time and then in your part time, you know, work on trying to build this passion project and just, just see where it goes. You know, maybe it, maybe it turns into something you can scale or maybe not, but it's a good, it's a good, it's a good time to try it in that, in that downtime between your full-time work. Thanks for that. And, and it makes me smile a little bit. So, cause I've listened to quite a lot on, um, others that have decided to to, to go it alone. And uh, a lot of them said, like you, that, you know, they went down the failure is not an option really. If you don't, if you don't have any other options, then you've no, you've no choice, but to make it work. Right. And I think 
it, it's kind of a, it's kind of like, you know, at some point you've got to rip off the bandaid or rip off the plaster, right. And, and just, just, just get stuck in, I guess. And, and I think that's what a lot of people struggle with. It's that, it's that fear piece. You know, it's that, you know, I'm not going to have the, the monthly income, you know, I can't guarantee that it's going to be a success. So I think it's fair what you're saying. And, um, I don't know whether you follow him, but Justin Welsh, um, he's, he's actually one, one of the, the influence of, if influences, if you like, that really promotes solo, solopreneurship. Um, and his recommendations are to start with, like, just, just try and replace like, one element of your expenses, you know, so, so if you're paying utility bills, for example, you know, start there, you know, make enough money just to, to cover that expense and then slowly grow it from there. And I think that, that aligns with what you're saying there is if you do have the time, it's worth testing the water before you go all out and jump into the deep end, I guess. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I said, you got to make your first dollar before you can make your hundredth dollar you just have to go step by step. And I think if you can get it to a point where you've replaced, you know, 50 or 60% of your income, then maybe that is a good time to go all in. But some of the, some of the things you have to factor that are different from being a W2 employee, at least in the U S is that you have to cover your own insurance, which is typically covered by an employer. It's also much harder to get a home loan. Um, because your W-2 income at least, you know, proves out in theory, some longevity, whereas your own business, you need a lot more years of operating history. So there's some like red tape and admin frustration that can happen from going all in. You also pay a little more in tax. So like if you replace your income one-to-one, -one, you're not really replacing your net income one-to-one -one because you're paying both the employer and the employee tax piece. So. There's a lot of detail that goes into it once things start to scale, but a good, a good litmus test to kick things off is okay. If I can, in my part time, spare time, at least create a portion of my old income. Well, you know, that's pretty good. And then if you're over half, then maybe that's the time to consider going all in, but it is, it's tricky for everybody. It kind of depends on everybody's family situation. You know, if you have a spouse, if they're working or not, you know, that, that factors into it too. And I mean. For us, I'm very fortunate, you know, my, my wife works at the, at the children's hospital. She's a nurse and she covers the insurance for our family. So that's not a business expense that I need to carry right now, which made starting it up much easier. So I, I didn't have to bear that expense early on. So again, that was just a unique situation that I was fortunate to take advantage of, but it won't, it wouldn't be the same for everybody. So you kind of have to, you know, compare your new project in, in the whole lens of your entire life and what you're, what you're solving for. And I suppose, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come on to, to tools and stuff in a second, of course, you know, tech for finance, we need to talk about the, the tech at some point, but I suppose that the last thing that I'll say regarding the, the solopreneurship and the, the going it alone is I'm hoping with technology as it is now, it makes that initial phase of building, whether it's a website, whether it's uh, you know, just something like a simple newsletter landing page or, or something like that, you know, we can get the stuff set up in minutes now, as opposed to, you know, previously when it take hours or days to learn how to create the website and then learn how to, to do whatever. So I'm optimistic that it's now becoming easier for people to start the passion projects and, and the side hustles. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll come on to, to the tech, I guess in, in a bit. But before I forget, because we've, we've got to assume a lot of, a lot of the listeners here are still in full-time employment and maybe don't have ambitions to go it alone just, just yet, whether they're early in their finance career or they're, um, just looking to, to learn, um, more about tech and, and how that, that reflects in finance. But there's, there's evidently a lot of skills that you probably picked up in working for yourself, um, and being the, the founder of a business, um, that you might not have considered could relate to being in employment. So I suppose the short version of that question is, is there anything that you've learned working for yourself that you think would be a useful skill to people that are employed? Yeah, it's a really good question. I would say the number one thing that I've learned working for myself is, um, marketing and sales, because I coming from a finance background, I mostly had my head in spreadsheets all day and was very involved in like the technical side of the business. And especially as a junior employee, a lot of that work was handed to me. Um, but when I, especially when I worked for larger companies, smaller companies, it was a little bit different. You had to kind of go, go out and find your own work a little bit, but typically I was behind the scenes and being asked to complete projects working on my own. I figured out not only do I have to go find the work, which is hard, then I got to go do the work. 
But in order to fight it, I have to be good at marketing and good at sales, which is something, a skill I'd never, ever learned before. And I think if you can apply that to a, what I'll call a full-time or FTE position, it's just really, really helpful because it'll start making you a little bit more visible in the organization, probably help you get up a little bit higher because at some point, regardless of company size, when you get to a high enough level, you are at the point of finding the work as opposed to doing the work. And so the sooner you can, you can develop that skill of going out and actually bringing in new business to the company. I think that that is a key thing as opposed to just kind of being a worker bee and cranking behind the scenes. And I think that, that was the biggest inflection point for me of like, I love to build financial models and that's my core skill. But in order to go find that, I had to learn how to sell and how to acquire those customers. And that, that's been the biggest change for me, for me going from like more of an employee to a, to an owner, let's say. That's fair. That's, that's interesting. And, and coming to that, I suppose it comes back to building influence, doesn't it? And there's, there's a lot of focus right now, um, on small businesses as well as large businesses on the role of finance business partners and how you need to translate you know, finance information into a form that's understandable to, to the rest of the business. Um, and those skills always tend to come back to sales and marketing because you've got to argue a point of view. You've got to build a business case, you know, you've got to influence as, as we sell. So I think it's a, it's a fair shout, you know, people don't often realize that they're selling sometimes, whereas, you know, everybody sells and I, and I've, I've mentioned the book before, you know, Dan Pink to sell as human. You know, even if you're not in sales, it's a, it's a book that's worth reading um, just because it's, it's really good reading it and it applies to everybody, not just to salespeople. So, no, I think, I think you're right there. Thanks for that, Chris. So I suppose coming back to, um, what you mentioned there with being really good at building financial models, obviously uh, I would recommend that everybody follows you on LinkedIn because you, you do some really great videos. I think you're up to what, 55,000 followers or something like that. So you, so you must be doing something right. Right. Um. And of course you've, you've got the advantage of, um, being really, really good with Excel. And of course, many people that work in finance love Excel, you know, um, even if they are using other software tools, you often find that they still revert back to, you know, doing a lot of work in Excel because it's so flexible and something that, that they're used to. Right. So when we look at building a model and, and this does relate to, to tools, but of course we've now got a generation of companies that be, are being developed that are trying to get finance teams to buy local low code tools for specific purposes. You know, we've, we've had some on, on the podcast, right? So we had Adam Sigournis who does, um, Blowcog, which is an FPA tool specifically for SaaS companies, you know, which, which is really good. He's really, really found his niche there and spoken to other people that are building stuff like chat GPT into the likes of zero and all of those sorts of things. So. From your perspective, um, what are the pros and cons of say a, a preset off the shelf, local tool, low code tool versus, you know, building your own model in Excel be good to, to hear your perspective on that. Yeah. It's an interesting question. I, I think at some point, every company that at least matures beyond, you know, a small group of people and gets kind of like 50, hundred plus employees is going to need a more robust FP&A software type system. I think you just, you can't rely on, uh, at, le at least from a data repository, you need, you need a true system for data. You, you could make an argument that you could run an operating model through an, through Excel, even for a company that size, which I, I have done before. So I think it's reasonable, but like your data needs to be in a secure place. That's reliable. I would also say now with like the FP&A software that's out there. It's a great idea to also implement a tool like that for FPA planning that you can bring in teams and run more live reports and get away from some of the pain points that exist with Excel. And so as an Excel guy, that might seem like, well, that's the opposite of what I would say, but the, the truth is Excel has its place when you start getting a little bit more complex with in the, in the M and A space specifically related to EBITDA adjustments, layering in buyouts or multiple transactions. And every conversation I typically have with FP&A software is that's usually the stomping point. They have great software that is for a steady state, 
budget versus actuals, uh, some really great SaaS tools to kind of aggregate all the products and or the uh, contracts and recognize revenue. That's all well and good. But once you start getting into, we have to build an EBITDA schedule that's got four or five different tiers for different audiences. And then we have to factor in each and every buyout that we're going to do as like a roll-up strategy and all the pro forma adjustments had we owned it the entire time. People say, well, yeah, you still kind of need Excel for that. And, and I, I agree. I think you do. I think, is there going to be a day when you can do all that through software? Maybe, but you, you start getting into the coding element of that software and the whole sales pitch of that is, is no code. So I think. Data 100% needs to be in like a secure repository and you can either siphon that into Excel if you want, or you can, you know, layer it through fp and software. Keeping things in Excel is a, of course, more finicky, more risk prone, but cheaper way to do something that also has more flexibility if you're taking your company out of the fp and space and potentially into more of a roll-up or M&A, M&A type landscape. And... I did see one of, one of your courses, so a bit, bit of a plug, plug here for you on the, uh, the financial model education. Um, but I think your, your, your terminology here, so did financial modeling, uh, modeling for private equity, deep learning differentiator, um, learn to model a leveraged buyer or LBO. Um, if you ever want a senior finance role, you need to understand how a transaction works, which is, which is fair. You know, I, I completely understand with that. And, especially when businesses are looking for senior staff, it may be part of the job spec that you have had experience in, in that sort of area. And um, slightly different question, not on the list of topics at all. Um, but, but for somebody who's a little bit more junior, and um, some, sometimes they might have this sort of thing thrown on them, you know, so, so they might not go into the role knowing that the company is planning, you know, some. You, you know, some, something going on in the future. So one day, you know, oh, this is the route, you know, um, this is what's happening, you know, we, we need help and, and so on. So again, to shorten my question is for anybody that's not got experience that maybe ends up in a situation where they're having to tackle this sort of stuff, what would your recommendations be? I think it's to distill it and in, down into its most simplest form is a, a business can kind of operate like, uh, like a home. In that at some point it may be eligible for sale. And I think we're all semi-familiar with the fact that like you can buy a home, it appreciates in value. And then if, and when the time is right, you can bring it out to market and sell it. And conceptually a business operates in the same way. It's either acquired in the first place or potentially started by founders. They will work their hardest to improve the business and grow it and either keep it forever if they want or sell it just like you might sell a, uh, sell a house. And so for a more junior finance professional, the way a business is sold is generally by assessing the profitability of the company and the quality of the financials and the better the profitability and the better the, the quality of those numbers, the higher price that the company will, will fetch at auction or however it's sold in the, in the market. And so it's getting an understanding of the income statement. That's really the key piece of like, you know, where do I start? the income statement. Then at the bottom of that income statement, we're only going to be going to net income for gap accounting purposes, at least in the US. But we build an ancillary schedule called the EBITDA schedule, which is designed to normalize the profitability a little bit. And there's a whole debate you can have on EBITDA, whether it's good or bad. And I know both sides of that argument, but for purposes of our discussion here, typically the EBITDA is used as some kind of market multiple or comparison to other companies that were sold. And so if you can calculate the EBITDA for your business, you have a great starting point of what your company might be worth in the open market. And that kicks off the conversation. So to zoom out, somebody who's junior mastery of the P and L understanding how to build that EBITDA schedule that will immediately kind of get you a seat at the table. If you're in an M and a situation where we're saying, Hey, we might be going out to market. You know what do we do and, and where do we start? And and coming back to the to this discussion earlier, I mean, I suppose if people are unfam unfamiliar with how to build something like a like an EBITDA, EBITDA schedule or, or or stuff like that, providing the data is decent, you know, anybody who knows how that works could essentially build that in in Excel, for example, right? You know, providing you've got that core financial data, you can at least start generating some of those numbers. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. 
Yeah, no, that's correct. Every, everything that you need is in the income statement, at least to build your generic EBITDA. And I imagine a lot of FP&A software could probably build that too. Where it starts getting creative is, and this is what people tend to dislike about EBITDA, is you get a lot of discretionary adjustments that come from the management team where one-time items might be buried in certain expenses. And it's your job as the business owner or the analyst in this case to help the team pull out that information to build an adjusted EBITDA schedule to, again, try to, you're just doing your best effort to normalize the profitability. And a good example could be, you know, your advertising expense is a million dollars, but um, 500,000 of that was campaign you're never going to do again. You could argue, well, there's $500,000 of expense that we're not going to have going forward. That should be sitting in my EBITDA schedule because on a normalized basis, my profitability was, should be 500,000 greater if nothing else changes. So that's the creativity that comes into like layer two, layer three of the EBITDA schedule. And that's where a lot of the negotiation comes from because a buyer is going to have a different opinion than a seller on the legitimacy of those adjustments. And that's also where I feel like FP&A software tends to break down a little bit, at least from the ones I've seen. There could be other ones out there that handle this, but how do you get in there and sort of handpick out adjustments for purposes of your valuation. And then at, at that point, how different really are you than doing it in Excel in, in the first place? So that's that's where that, that breakdown, I think, comes a little bit. But to zoom out, you do have a majority of that information in the income statement and a, and a junior finance professional can pull most of it right into place. And do you, have you got any, um courses that revolve around EBITDA or any recommendations for people looking to, to build their knowledge there? Oh yeah. I, and not to plug it too hard, but like, yeah. So the, my, my LBO course is all about that. It's like brick by brick, building up a buyout transaction, a mid-market US company. It goes through all the EBITDA stuff, the new debt, the new equity, and like how to pro propose a recommendation to the managing partner. It, it comes from a, a perspective of a private equity firm, but it's equally applicable to somebody in FP&A who might be on, on the company side as opposed to the buy side. Um, so yeah, I include that in all of the content that I put together because I came from private equity and we basically like lived and died by EBITDA, whether that was like the right way to do it or not. That's just what the world revolved around. So all, all my content builds to EBITDA. Um, but the nice thing is like, there's a lot of great free content out there on EBITDA. You can do um, research on YouTube, which of course I've done plenty of. There are also a bunch of great LinkedIn personalities that put out really nice content on that. So there's, there's plenty of, of free stuff too, but it's, um, when you, when it gets to the modeling piece, it's just nice to see like how all the pieces come together to know, to know how to build it. But it's, um, it's such a ubiquitous topic. There's, there's a lot of free content out there. Why not? Yeah. And we'll, we'll put some links in the show notes. I think the, the most recent one I saw, was it, um, and I might be really mispronouncing her name here. Uh, Oanayan Labes or, or Labes, L-A-B-E-S, I think is the surname. I think she, I've seen quite a lot from her recently about EBITDA. So I'll, I'll see whether I can pull out some posters while I'm putting them in the show notes if they're useful to people as well. So yeah, yeah. I've actually spoken to her a few times. She has really, really informative content, especially around the EBITDA area. And, um, even from my private equity background, I feel like reading her stuff, I've, I've learned a lot. So I would definitely recommend just you know, finding her profile and reading her stuff is that it's helped me, especially in the, in like the M&A, FP&A space in terms of, um, she's very good at like simplifying a lot of concepts. So that, that just helps me when I'm trying to communicate, uh, to clients, this, the same kind of thing. So def definitely recommend checking her profile. Yeah. And I've, um, um, she's got a newsletter as well called the finance gem that I'm subscribed to. That's really good too. So uh, all good. So moving more into the tech then. Um, so without laboring the point too much, because I've, I've had a lot of conversations and a lot of the recent podcast content has been around AI and chat GPT. I think we need to recognize it, um, because it's getting to the point now where it just can't be ignored, right? In the same way that the internet became prolific, I think generative AI or AI in general is, is going to be the next, um, I suppose, you know, a lot of people can comparing to, you know, industrial revolutions and all that sort of stuff where, you know, things just speed up really, really quickly. And I, and I don't deny that, but I think at the same time, there is also a lot of, I won't say misleading, but there is a lot of unuseful 
content being banded around at the moment, just because it is such a buzzword. Um, and I did a post on it this morning, you know, LinkedIn at the moment just seems to be a, a breeding ground for people recommending a list of 50 AI tools. And with a lot of people not having actually researched or signed up or given the tools a go. And um, so, and, and it's a, it's a bit of a bit, of, a bit of a side note, but um, yeah, I've spent quite a lot of time in AI tools over the past month or so, right? Because it's, you know, it's part, part of what I do. It's, it's an interest for me. And a lot of the AI tools at the moment, people are still testing the water to see whether people actually want it. So a lot of them, you'll end up on the website and say, oh, you know, add to, add to the wait list. Um, and that's not a wait list to say, oh, we're actually building this. Sometimes it's a wait list just to see whether they do want to build it or not. It's like a pre-qualification of whether the product is viable or not. So just because you're on a wait list doesn't mean that the product is ever actually going to exist. But the reason I mentioned that is probably 50, 60% of the tools that I was looking at, um, not, not particularly good or just, or just reiterations of another tool that's good. That people are trying to, do you see what I'm saying? So. I think when we look at these, we need to be mindful of the fact that just because AI is now more accessible and there's more tools available, doesn't mean that we need to completely upend the way that we've been working, you know, for the past, however many years. So I suppose the question for you, and I know it's still kind of early, early days for you looking into some of these AI tools, which, which, which I understand, but it'd be good to get your impression for what you think at least in the short term ai just can't make up for right because because we know that um you can start plugging in chat gpt to spreadsheets now and that that's fine but it'll only surface information that exists on the spreadsheet you know if you're plugging it into that data source yes you could potentially say you know look at the data on this spreadsheet and then compare that to an industry benchmark for example but even still, you've got to make sure that you're really, really there with the accuracy because you can't guarantee that the benchmark that it's finding for you is accurate. For example, you know, you're just taking that generative AI and whatever it's been trained with is, is gospel, right? And then what I'm seeing as well at the moment is it is another big gap with context, you know, and this, this, I think is where, um, Adam at Flowcog's doing really good is he's training that context specifically for people in, in SaaS into the platform so that he knows that when they ask the AI a question, he's going to give more of a contextual response than just a, a random, this is something that we found that we were, we were trained with. So I suppose that's a long question, but the, the short question is what are the fundamental bits of information that AI just won't be able to surface from an organization in terms of context? And what skills do you think are still fundamental in building financial models? Um, the AI potentially is doing quite poorly at the moment. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think right now for me, the biggest thing is still trust, you know, it's so, it's so early and what I, what I'm finding is that you can use, you know, these AI models for a lot of valuable stuff. And I've, I've done it a ton, you know, I've had used it to help me with Excel files and I've used it, uh, on the content side too. And it, it certainly is very impressive and very scalable, but I, what I'm personally struggling with is trust. And I say that because I've had it help me with a handful of Excel things that it didn't quite do correctly. Like it's run some calculations wrong, or, you know, if you're a true Excel nerd, it was giving me like some indirect uh, recommendations to make text-based formulas, which I just wouldn't normally do because it sets your file up for a lot of risk. And so when I could just sort of pull out of my hat, a better solution than AI could come up with for something that I think it should be good at, you know, like an Excel problem or something that's very definitional based, I start to lose trust. And so I have no doubt that's going to improve. You know, there's going to be GPT five, six, seven, whatever it's going to be, and it's going to get better and better. And it's going to get integrated into spreadsheets with, with a lot more context. But right now it almost, I feel like it kind of exists in a vacuum a little bit for me. And what I'm using it for that I find is a great use case is related to content that I'm already pretty good at, or I already have a decent idea of what the results should look like, but I kind of want to sanity check or double check my, my thought process. Um, and especially from modeling perspective, I like having to double check some of my accounting logic. Like I was working on a 
a working capital build the other day of linking up the inventory, the accounts payable and the accounts receivable and flowing it all through the income statement. And I wanted, I was just asking, you know, Hey, I'm trying to think about this relationship, this relationship, and it, it was sort of validating what I was thinking and it helped me make a, a, a nice model. So I think that's a perfect use case for it now. Um, but it's obviously it could be taken advantage of. It can definitely be abused. You know, I get really scared when people get lazy about it and they just ask it questions without thinking. It kind of turns our brains off and we copy paste and just, you know, shotgun this content out there because it's done the work for us. Um, but I think that's going to change. You know, I mean, it's only, it's only been out since November, I think, which is kind of crazy to me. And it's become such a common thing we use in everyday life. At least those of us who are kind of focused in this sort of tech content space. Um, so it's early, but I, the, the future kind of worries me a little bit because it's so, it is so powerful and, and everything is AI-ified right now. You know, it's images and video and content and modeling and like everywhere you look, somebody's got AI sprinkled on something, you know, it kind of feels like the blockchain hype from a couple of years ago where it's just sort of everywhere. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't really know what's going to happen with it. I, I think it's just, it's just interesting to watch it play out real time. It's good to be involved in it and use it as a reliable assistant, um, and just see how, how that contextual functionality for it changes down the road. And it, no, nobody's got a crystal ball, right? You know, and, and I, and I think that's what unsettles people the most is, you know, you, you've got some very influential people across the world that are saying stuff like we need to put the brakes on it for six months, you know, and, and there's, there's one argument to say that some of those influential people are behind in terms of their own technology. So it's kind of a, oh, you need to slow down. We need to catch up a little bit. But I think part of it is also the, the more founded argument in, in my view, which is how do we police it? You know, how do we ensure it's secure? You know, um, cause we've heard stories, I think, um, there was a ban of it in Italy or, or ChatGPT specifically in Italy because of whether it's a data breach or something like that. So, so those are, those are real scenarios that we've got to be mindful of, but in terms of that hockey stick, so where we are now and the next iteration, which again, we've got to assume that the jump between GPT three and GPT four is going to be substantially more with the jump from GPT four tier to GPT five. And again, we don't know what that's, that's going to look like. And I think the whole concept of artificial general intelligence, which is when we're getting into AI thinking for itself is, you know, the, the real scary bit, because as I spoke about in the interview with, with Glenn Hopper and, you know, then you start getting into the, the territory of, right, well, when AI can do everything, what does everybody else do? You know, do you have the concept of universal income? You know, do you, are you just given, you know, a function to do because the AI says that based on your skills, you're best at doing this, and this is how you need to to conform, but again, I, I don't, don't get too far ahead with that. But I think what you, you said coming about there relating to accuracy and assistance for where we are now, because again, we can only comment on where we are now. I think you've hit, hit the nail on the head whereby, um, and Microsoft is sending it co-pilot because they're going to build it into office, right? Um, I think they already have, it's just not, I don't think publicly available yet. But it's, it's going to be Clippy 2.0, right? You know, where you've got your little thing in the bottom right of the screen where it says, oh, I see you're trying to do this. What do you think about doing that? You know, and uh, that should speed up the workflow with the more administrative stuff. You know, so for people like you and I that have way too much to do and not enough time to do it, I think that's where the real wins are. I think for me, the concern is, as you say, for, for the people that are maybe growing up with this technology that don't have the experience and having had to do everything manually to begin with, you know, there is that risk, as you say, that people end up not thinking for themselves anymore, you know, and we could have this whole new generation of people that are just basically giving AI, you know, owners to, to, to control everything. I think. What I'd say there is there's a lot to be said sometimes going back to basics and just doing, doing stuff manually, you know, and, and going through the step-by-step, -step, you know, and building something from scratch, you know, because it's only then when you've got that foundation, correct me if I'm wrong, that 
you're going to be able to ask the AI better questions in the future. You know, there's some things in terms of fundamental skills that, you know, AI is just not going to be able to emulate. Right. And I think, you know, it's important to remember that AI is trained on a bunch of people who did that manual work in the first place and built all the building blocks, you know, from which AI can learn. You know, if, if we just let it kind of take over, you know, it's, it stops getting the building blocks that it needs that were sort of human human developed in the first place. Now, if it learns to think for itself, you know, who knows? But then we're like kind of off in, you know, in speculating. And I feel like right now, the great use case for it and sort of my hope for it is, you know, somebody who's a little more seasoned in their career and knows how to use it responsibly and can understand its power. I want to use it to make my work more efficient so I can help more clients, right? Ideally, I'd love to say, hey, instead of me cranking out this three statement model AI, why don't you do it so that I can actually look at the results and we have a faster conversation with the client. And then for me, from a revenue perspective, you know, I could get away from charging hourly if I was charging hourly for somebody and do a more value-based contract. And it's kind of a win-win for everybody. So I, I could see where scaling the technology in that sense is great for somebody in a position who kind of knows, or at least the best of their ability, how to use it responsibly. What I what I worry about more is you get away from finance or whatever else. Like I'm thrilled that I'm not in high school right now and have the ability to use AI to like put out some English paper that I have, you know, didn't read the book for or whatever else. I can imagine that that is exhausting for teachers. And while it seems cool for students, and I'm sure I would find it cool if I was in high school, it's, it just sets a dangerous precedent for kind of softening our brains, not really challenging ourselves to learn in the classic way. And it just can create a lot of confusion and misinformation for people that are growing up with this, this technology. And so I can really see it going both ways where you've got the, the core users that want to use it for the best intentions to the best of its ability. And then people that either don't want to use it for the right reasons or are even unaware that they're using it for the wrong reasons. And that could really create this split in where the technology helps and hurts everybody. Yeah. And it comes back to that point again about yeah. does, does education need to, to shift? And I think the short answer to that is yes. You know, and, and, and my own perspective has always been, that I didn't retain any knowledge from, from my early education. You know, all of those biology and chemistry classes and all that sort of stuff. Anybody ask me now what I learned during that time, it, I'd come back saying, I, I honestly can't remember, you know, and, and, and it's because maybe it's just my learning style, but I, I do believe that people learn by doing, you know, so, so if you're not taking those concepts and actually doing something with them, then why, why would your brain need to retain them? Because it's learning about other stuff, right? So I've always thought even you know, before ChatGPT, um, there were some fundamental changes needed, you know, in terms of core life skills, you know, I, I don't think there was enough focus on diet and nutrition, for example, you know, entrepreneurship, you know, you don't start getting into that sort of territory until you choose to do it for university or college or whatever it happens to be. So, but I think that's going to be even more relevant now because, you know, you, you take away the majority of the, the factual based stuff, because an AI can just throw information at you left, right, and center. All you've got to do is know how to ask it the right question. But then the question, the next question is more, I guess, going down the philosophical angle, which is right. Well, how do we think, you know, how do we provide value? You know, what skills do we need that are outside just learning concepts? Um, and my prediction as well. And. You know, we'll, we'll have to see what happens, but AI is now getting to the point where people can use AI to build AI tools, you know, they can use it to write code and, and all of that sort of stuff. But as I mentioned previously, people can also use it to build really rubbish products in the same way that people would build rubbish products and fail even pre AI. Yeah. So I think that the same rules still stand, it is still going to be about quality of ideas. You know, it doesn't matter how much tech you've got backing you up in the background, if the, the output is rubbish, you know, so, so I think that needs to be a focus for people. You know, it's one thing to do stuff quickly. It's another thing to do stuff quickly and produce a quality output, I guess. Yeah, that's great. No, that's a great point. Yeah. So go, going back a little bit then, cause I, sorry, I've gone off on one of my, one of my rants there a little bit, I just, <laughs> but coming back to, to the stuff that 
people still have the advantage with, right? So we've, we've still got the ability to work from experience, build that context and, and provide that judgment, you know, to validate accuracy and that sort of stuff. So, so coming back to, to the sort of stuff that you do, whether it's, you know, an M&A project or, you know, um, build, building a model, there are points when building that you do need to make a judgment. And that's not necessarily call it gut feel because, you know, it's always a bit risky when you start relying on gut feel. You know, I, I do like trying to say it needs to be the correct balance of data and gut feel, right? But AI at the moment, it can't produce that, that gut feel, you know, and, and coming back to what you said earlier about, you know, do we need to include this as something that's regular or is it, or is it always going to be a one-off, you know? So I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on how important do you think that human perspective and that gut feel with something like, you know, an M&A project, you know, still warrants human effort as opposed to AI? Yeah, it's, I think a great example I can draw on is, um, so I've, I've built out an agriculture company for many, many years. And from an AI perspective, you know, whether it could do this now or not, you basically give it the historical data for however much you want hook it up to, you know, economic trends and, and whatever else, and it will probably generate a reasonable forecast, you know, of what the business might do in the future. But agriculture especially is a tricky business because it's so seasonal and it's so dependent on weather. And typically the type of person who is kind of making sales in ag is not the kind of person that's making a financial model. And so what the what the technology cannot really, cannot do is it, it can't, it can't relate to the person who's just sort of been out in the field, who knows the local market and knows how to sell, who just has a sense of what the company's going to be doing for their specific products, because they've been doing it for so long, you know, there, and that's that, that's that gut feel element that I feel like there's still just this human component that we know from our experience that bring would bring a great perspective to this potentially AI produced model that's hooked up to all these different data sources, but it's never going to be, I think it always needs to be double checked by the people that have this lifelong expertise and experience in their field. And I, and again, I think ag is such a good example because AI could come up with this amazing model that's hooked up to, you know, crop data weather data, historical data, economic data, anything else. And it just might not rain next year, you know, and then, and then you, it was a good model to start, but it's kind of useless at the end of the day. Now a person can't predict whether it's going to rain either. Right. But it's nice to have them have that double checking ability to what the, what the technology can produce. So I, I hope that our ability to leverage gut feel based on experience remains. And that we can use AI as a great sanity check, as a great double checking tool. That's like a, you know, horse powered 10 analysts in one kind of tool, but that we don't blindly rely on it to kind of, to set our forecast. Mm. And you're dead right, you know, and, and it's probably not accessible to the smaller end of the market right now. Right. But there, there are a number of enterprise FPNA platforms that do allow you to, to hook up external external data, whether it's in the form of weather or, you know, fill in the gap. And I know you and I both know Paul Barnhurst. You've been on uh, FPNA today, haven't you? Yeah. And he was on the, I think he was guest number five on, on this podcast actually, but he, he was talking in those terms and that was pre chapter the T, right? But, but you're absolutely right. You know, a prediction is still a prediction, you know, that I'm not saying number of data points is irrelevant. Because if the data points are reasonably accurate and, um, and AI is, it's, it's got lots of data when it comes to history, you know, it can infer quite a lot, but you know, I think weather's a great example because you can have as many past data points on the weather, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that is hundred percent going to happen, you know, in the future, you know, and, and I'm sure there's, there's crossovers of different industries that probably don't have time to, to go into today. The other one that interested me, actually, and I don't know whether you saw it, and I can't remember whether it was today or, or a few days ago, um, I believe Bloomberg have just released their own, like, AI tool called, like, Bloomberg, Bloomberg GPT or something like that. I, I, I might be making a hash of the name. 
And I don't know anything about it, but my guess is it is a, a chat tool that you can use to, to quickly gain information on, on financial markets and, and that sort of stuff. And it immediately made me panic a little bit because are we now getting to a situation now as well, where if you do have cash in the bank, you know, and because AI is hooked up to a load of historic data points about where a market didn't and didn't do well, are people just going to ask chat GPT or what stock should I invest in? And, and I find that terrifying. I don't know whether you do. Oh yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I think asking a computer for investment advice, uh, you know, it has two folds. I mean, if you're, if you're assuming it's going to be old technically based and you're a technical trader using, you know, all the different trend lines and whatnot, you know, that's one approach, but I think you could, you could maybe use AI to recommend a portfolio based strategy where you're putting in the same dollar amount every single time. And it's an emotionless business model where hopefully you hit it right. 60% of the time, you know, that that's one approach, but if you just kind of a mom and pop and like asking you, well, you know, what should I do here? I mean, I just don't feel like that's a great approach, you know, but I think now somebody just totally weighing that too, going by their gut also isn't a great approach, you know, necessarily. So I just. It's more as opposed to it giving financial advice. I just more worry about people mentally, like handing over the keys to this technology and just letting it do what it wants. And it, okay, I analyze the news and the past market and correlation between the last nine recessions. And so like, let's just buy a bunch of put options and let it ride. You know, that, that stuff to me is just kind of a scary way. And I think a way that people could really lose their shirts on investing when like the smarter thing was maybe to just do nothing you know, keep it in cash or, or whatever else. So yeah, I, ha I actually hadn't seen the Bloomberg thing, but again, it doesn't surprise me because I feel like, you know, the acronym GPT is everywhere and, and AI and whatever else. And it's just getting stamped on the end of stuff, just like the Kodak blockchain thing from whatever year that was, you know? So it's, it's, um, I'm not surprised at all. And it's, it's all the rage right now. So I know it's everywhere. I'm, I'm kind of hoping it maybe settles out a little bit, you know, and we kind of get back to, it's a tool that's here to help us, but not a tool that's designed to, to take us over and make our decisions for us. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. I, I mean, I've, I've just looked it up now. It is literally called Bloomberg GPT, <laughs> a 50 billion parameter language model that's trained on a wide range of financial data. So is that uh, cool? <laughs> that, uh, well, I don't know whether it is actually launched yet. So due to be launched two days ago, so I don't know whether it's actually here yet. Might be here by the time the podcast's out, but we'll, we'll have to see it. But, but something in, in terms of, cause you mentioned decisions there. Again, this, this, this doesn't really relate to our conversation either, but we're talking about it now is I struggle quite a lot with decision fatigue, whether you do as well, you know, what do I focus on? What's my priority? You know, what's next? How do I organize my to-do list and all that sort of stuff. And I guess to the point where I've got so much going on with work and so much in my head that it comes to personal decisions and, and I just don't, I sometimes just don't have the mental capacity to think about what is generally simple stuff, you know, um, and what I have found quite useful recently, and, and again, it's only for those sort of really low risk decisions when you want a sounding board, but to have a chat bot, and I don't think it's therapy, not quite into therapy to the point where, you know, it's um, but, but so, so, so I'm going to need a new car at some point because my wife, like, like you guys, I mean, she wants to have kid number three at some point. So the car at the moment, you know, isn't big enough. She's got a little tiny car. So that'll be the next thing, you know, getting a new car because there's all sorts of different finance models. You've got personal hire purchase, lease contracts. You've got getting a bank loan, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And for me to even think about that sort of stuff at, at the moment, you know, just, just don't have the mental capacity. So putting it into ChatGPT, and again, I won't make my decision solely on this, but just having a sounding board to say, these are my three options. These are what sort of cars I'm looking at. Narrow down my options, you know, at least as a first pass, it takes a little bit of that, you know, mental fatigue away from the whole process. Yeah. So, but there's a balance, isn't there? You know, that's, that's not investing 10,000 pounds, you know, a stock. You see what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, I've have found it's actually surprisingly good at trying to help you relate to real life scenarios a little bit where it's, you know, Hey, I'm working, I've got this going on and what do you think? It, it does spit out a decent list of ideas 
for you to weigh some options. And um, yeah, it can sort of be like a helpful resource to organize your thoughts. And that actually, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I'm a one person business. I have three kids. I mean, it's, it's on my mind constantly of how am I going to grow the business? How am I going to make sure the business doesn't crash and, you know, help take care of my family. And, um, sometimes just, ha- well, if you appreciate this, I, I run my calendar through AI. So I like AI. It helps me, right? It helps me get organized of what I'm going to do next. You know, that's kind of one way of doing it. Anything I can do to leverage it, to clear up some of that mental capacity so that when I am with family, I can be present on that and not always have my head thinking about what I got to do with the business next, because there's no, there's no break. So I feel like, you know, that's a great way to use it, to free up some of that headspace because we all do have a lot going on, whether you're a business owner or you're a full-time employee, it's just, we have a lot, you know, a lot of things to balance. And I haven't, I haven't used it quite as much as sort of like that personal life context, like you mentioned, but once or twice, and I'm definitely like, wow, that's, it's certainly interesting. It certainly provides a handful of like decent recommendations and, and great would just get your, get your thoughts, thoughts organized and like clear up some of that mental capacity. Mm. Mm. And you say you run your calendar through AI, is that a specific tool or? Yeah. So it's actually the tool called, uh, motion, which I like. I like a lot. It's probably 80% good. You know, it's got some bugs, but it's, uh, it's cool. You know, the short of it is not to like overly pitch it, but like you kind of put in what you got to do, give it the relative priority and it will spit it out back on your calendar in order of priority and go around your, your meetings and whatever else you have. So you gotta, you gotta stay on top of it. It's a tool, right? If you get to put something in, it's not going to be there, but I actually really like it. And like, if I, they have a, you know, a half decent app on their phone, that's not great, but like. I was, I'll say to myself, oh, I've got to get back to my tax guy. Like I'll put a thing in the, in the app that just says, do that and do it right away. And it will prioritize that task above everything else to do on my list. So it's nice. I've learned to use it again, well enough to get the job done to save me time. Is it perfect? No. Right. Are there things I'd love to change? Sure. And can I get like lost in the system sometimes? Like I want to like over automate it and make it like so sweet. And then I, I find I'm wasting time. Yes, that happens too. So like you have to learn the, you know, the learning curve and get used to it. But now that I got it, I just keep it up. I keep looking at my left here. It's on this other monitor. I say, okay, I got that to do next. And that would be a good way to prioritize my time. And that's been a a great way for me to leverage AI to stay organized. So yeah, that, the thing is called motion. It's pretty cool. Yeah. We, we've had motion recommended before. Um, I've used motion. I've used a similar tool called SkedPal. Um, I don't know whether they're still going, but, but that worked quite well for a time. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, it, it's great. Uh, there's a guy called Howard Tunnadless here in the UK, who's a finance director for the economist. And I set him a challenge a few weeks ago, cause he's, he's a pen and paper guy, right? So it's, you need to at least start using some tech to at least do a brain dump, whether it's a, a, a virtual notepad or just a task manager and app, just to, to get it off paper and out of your head and, and into something like that. And I did recommend that he try a scheduling tool. So I recommended motion and, and he had a go and, and in the, the response put together when he was doing a review, his, um, his, his comment was basically too much AI for me. And, and, you know, for, for him just getting sort of the, the fundamentals of the, the cloud notes and the cloud task management was, was enough to then go to that next level, somebody who isn't as, you know, he admits himself that he's a bit of a technophobe to go in and set up something like motion. He just found it quite fatiguing. Um, he said he could hundred percent see the use case for in the week that he had to trial these tools, you know, he said, look, as you say, the lead, the learning curve is too much. And, and I suppose that's another takeaway that I'd give people listening. You know, we mentioned how many AI tools are, are appearing, you know, left, right, and center. And they've got bright and shiny business cases and, you know, in flashing lights, you know, oh, you know, use this tool to generate your presentations for you. And, and I'm guilty. Some of them work really, really well, um, or use this hour to do that. And, and without even knowing it, you've spent hours with this particular tool, you know, trying to understand the way that it works on the basis that it can help you with that business case. But actually when you take a step back and think, hang on, I could have probably done that quicker, like without using the tool. Do you, you see what I mean? So, so my recommendation is spend like half an hour 
like experimenting, but then past that, if you don't see the immediate result from just, just move on because otherwise you could spend forever in a day experimenting with the, all these tools and just lose, lose a load of time for no reason. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, another thing that's important to remember is even though we have amazing software, it's, it's hard as people to change our behavior. So to get this AI tool that you have to onboard and learn, and then ultimately actually use it to change your behavior. I mean, that, that's a big shift that you have to make. And so I think I like your recommendation of like, you know, spend 20, 30 minutes on it. If you like it, cool. Maybe give it a try. And if not, just, just call it a day and move on. And I've done that with a handful of software, like to, you know, automate presentations, automate whatever else. And I just find, man, this is too hard. This is too hard to onboard, or I don't have the patience for this, or I could just pull together some piece of crap in PowerPoint that is at least better than, or faster than, you know, the pretty graphics that this thing is going to generate theoretically on, on my behalf. So yeah, there's a, there's a key lesson there of like, you can, you can get lost in these tools because they're so shiny and cool, but are they really helping you get closer to your long-term goal? Are they really buying you an extra hour during the week? Like, you know, make it on time for dinner, or is it just some other tool that's going to, you know, occupy your brain capacity that you maybe would have had if you did nothing in the first place. Yeah. 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 That's it. And coach, if you would find Chris. And um, we've come up to, to an hour, but have you, have you got another five minutes or so? Hold yeah, on. yeah, for sure. Yep. So coming back to what you do day to day then, and this is more of a focus on, on tech, right? So you, you've talked a little bit about, you know, more specifically the point at which, you know, a low code tool might not work because the complexity has got to the point where, you know, there needs to be that extra input, you know, use the example of, you know, M and A and all that sort of stuff. So just day to day, when you are approaching your work, say somebody's asked you to, to build a model or, or do whatever, what are the fundamentals for you? Do, you? do you start in Excel? Do you have a template you work from? You know, can you talk us through the, the process? I mean, I don't know whether you're using AI as part of or any of the, the stuff that you generate in mind. It would be good to get a, an idea of your step-by-step -step and what sort of tools you use to facilitate that end result. If you could spend five minutes just walking us through that. Yeah, sure. So I would actually say my approach is probably surprisingly old school compared to all the templates and AI that is out there. You know, I, I pretty much live in Excel. Um, I do a lot of work in Google sheets now, but mostly Excel. Um, I do have some template based models because every business at some point or another can roll up into the three statements. And so I'll have pre-built, uh, income statement, balance sheet statement of cash flows. And a lot of that is automated and formulaically built. And what I will do is just manipulate a handful of accounts. I'll basically take a company's chart of accounts in one column and then in the column next to it, map them according to the buckets that I want them to go into the three statements like revenue or headcounts or on the balance sheet, you know, accounts receivable. And so long as I have them grouped like that, then at the operating the level, the three statement level, it should, it should sort of flow automatically. So. That's, that's a template-based approach I take to most mid-market companies where the customization comes in is actually building out typically elements of the P&L. Like if you're going to model out the revenue, you know, the way I model out a, the revenue for an agricultural company is much different than a trucking company, different than a SaaS company. Not because the three statements are all that different. They're going to be the same. It's just, it's the inputs. It's the underlying pieces that you have to build to get it to work so it fits that business. So I'll have a bunch of underlying schedules where I meet with the management teams and map out exactly how they do, how they grow their business. And then that flows into my three statement model from like a modeling perspective. So the structure is typically like got raw data from my, from their accounting system. That's one, let's get the history in there. Then the middle section is now let's, let's have tactical discussions on how does the business actually work? Let's build that underlying detail, all of that subtotals into the three statement model in its respective position. And then the three statement model runs automatically because that's pretty much template based. And then the summaries on top of that are also pretty much template based because I'm just pulling information from the three statement model. So it's kind of like a, you know, it's almost like a 50, 50 approach. People say 80, 20, but really like. The three statement model is only about 50% of it because there's so much that goes underneath the model to get the underlying metrics correct. And then to change your summaries so that your, you know, your KPIs are relevant 
to the to the business at hand. So I'd say it's fairly manual. You know, I'm I'm still in models, customizing them as much as I can, trying to make them custom fit for the company. But then the updating piece is very streamlined and that's quick. And we dump in the new financials, flick a switch and boom, and it's kind of done. Um, so it's old school on the modeling side. You know, when I do my my content and marketing business, that's a little a little bit different. I try to use a lot more technology for that in terms of sometimes I use AI. I don't, I don't use it a ton, um, but I'll do for like idea generation. Sometimes I'll also use a scheduler to pre-schedule all my social media posts. I use another software to analyze the data. And like, so there's a lot of software for me on the content side. So I can see what's working for my marketing, marketing, because my marketing brings in the clients to help me build those models, right? So once you get into the client piece, it's much more manual and old school in nature, but the the tip of the spear has a lot more, a lot more tech to it. Yeah. I guess coming back and just, just summarizing probably, you know, our entire conversation today, just hearing you talk through that model is that a huge amount of your work is based on that understanding and understanding those KPIs, you know, and I think that's, that's still the biggest gap, isn't it? You know, it's, it's what we've got to be mindful of. It's your experience, you know, it's the experience of the people running the company based on how well they know their business that then allows you to put the data together, you know, and, and I don't know when it will come, but you know, may, maybe in the future, there's a world where, you know, you give an AI a type of business and immediately knows what the KPI should be, you know, and, and, and you give it, you know, an output to say, this is the model we want to produce and it, and it fills in the gaps. But for me, I think it's still really, really far away. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, it would surprise me if that is the future at some point, you know, you have an encrypted AI, so you could give it the chart of accounts, say, you know, here's what we need and have it spit it all out. And, um, you know, that would be an awesome, an awesome tool. Like, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see how it would work. I think the, the, the tale of building trust around that, you know, that's a much longer sell. That's a much longer tail. I would think the technology is there much, you know, much sooner than the reliability. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if it comes, I mean, it's, um, at the end of the day, whether we're human or artificial, we're all, we're all doing our best to make data driven decisions about the future. Even if that data is kind of gut feel, you know, gut feel is still just another data point. So it would be, wouldn't surprise me if we have such an aggregated amount of data that we can spit out these forecast models, but I think for a very, very long time, there's going to need some element of human double check before we put it into, into action because people still have to do the work at least, at least for now you know until we all have it, like ai integrated into our brain stems or something and the computer's working for us we still have to look at the output and say okay somebody's actually got to go do that you know it's one it's one thing to make a pretty model and have it look nice but like who's going to be out knocking on doors or picking up the phone or you know who knows whatever tech we're using at that time but like some, some human has to actually achieve those results for our model to be worth, I think, today. 100%. No, that's, that's great, Chris. Really appreciate that. So, so the last question is the question that I always ask. You mentioned motion as something that helps you with your scheduling. Obviously, we know that you're a big fan of Excel. So you can't say either of those two, nor can you say your smartphone because that's a cop-out. But the, the question is, if there was one or gadget in either your personal or professional life that you are completely reliant on that couldn't live without, what would it be? Oh, interesting. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that is on my phone. Um, the tough question I couldn't live without. We've had, um, audible, had Spotify from a personal perspective. Um, we've had, oh, Angel, she, she's got uh, an app that she uses for, for chopping up, um, chopping up her videos and doing captions and all that sort of stuff. So if, if it's time, if you, if you want to reserve your answer on them, we can, we can, um, pick up at late, hey, that's absolutely fine. No, I think, I mean, if I can, can I pick something on the phone? Cause like I have spots okay. by an audible on the phone. Oh, okay. Yeah. Then I, I would say that I truly couldn't live without, this is so simple, but it's just. It's just iChat, like because, because the, just the texting platform, because with the, 
with the three kids and me working and my wife working, we just need to be in communication at all times to like manage and navigate the family. And so, and I feel like, you know, you can't always pick up the phone and call somebody. So just the ability to communicate, to keep the family organized. I think that'd be like the number one thing that would be, that would be really if I couldn't do that, everything else I might be able to just, just wing it, you know, but, uh, I think just having the, the semi live communication to keep the family organized, if I could not put up that. And that's, I t so that's interesting so, yeah, over here in the UK and I don't know how it differs in, in the States, but, um, people tend to favor WhatsApp over the standard iMessaging. Mm. So interesting. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, there's a big thing about it being more secure than that. I, I can't remember, but, but for whatever reason, I can't figure it out. People decided that they were going to use WhatsApp for IMs over, uh, iMessages, but either way, who knows? Who Interesting. Knows? Yeah. I mean, I've used both, but I, uh, I said the iChat is pretty, pretty common over here and that's where we, that's where we use it most of the time. Yeah. But, and it's a recommendation for you and I, and I'm really annoyed because I can't remember the name, um, but it, it is a family based. AI assistant and, and, and I'll, I will track it down. I'll put it in the show notes and I'll send it across to you, but it is, um, an AI, I think it's like a virtual assistant that is solely geared around making family life easier. So like shopping lists, um, activities that need to be scheduled, you know, all, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I saw the, the marketing for it and I thought. That's amazing. That looks really good. And, and I think I ended up on the wait list. Another one of those tools where there's a wait list, right? <laughs> right. But find it and dig it out. I'll send it, send it along to you again. It might, might fall into that category of one of those tools where you give up after half an hour, <laughs> but we'll have to see. We'll have to see, but uh, no, oh, but, yeah, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see it. Definitely. But really good to have you on. So before we leave, what, where can people find more about you? I'll put your LinkedIn profile in the show notes. Where else? Yeah, I mean, so LinkedIn is, is, of course, number one. That's kind of my primary marketing strategy. I try to, yeah, I mean, I run, you know, I build a business through that, but I'm always posting finance content, modeling content, uh, all the time on there. It's just been a great, it's been a great channel for me. And then, um, that I have another website for my consulting called, uh, missioncapitalco.com. That's the more tactical, uh, FP&A and M&A work that I'll do for clients. And then, um, through my LinkedIn, I'll, I've also got other website for my, my courses and stuff. It's, it's technically called private equity modeling dot thinkific.com, which is a very long URL I'm working on changing that. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you keep that one on the show notes, but I'd say LinkedIn is probably the number one. I'm pretty responsive on there. I like to get to know people and that's where I put a lot of my, my best content out so people can get to, get to know me a little better and kind of what I'm, what I'm all about. Fine. And you've got, um, the link in your LinkedIn bio. Is a split link, isn't it? I don't know whether you do. Is it Linktree or something like that that you use? Linktree. Yep. Yeah, Linktree. So basically click on that one link and it, and it will give everybody a link to all of your other resources as well there as well. So yeah, LinkedIn first, put the link in the bio and it will, well, I'll call all the other links in the show notes as well. So no yeah, worries. perfect. That's, that's the best place. Perfect. Absolute pleasure, Chris. I'll, I'll let you get off. Um, but once again, thanks, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no, I'm thrilled, thrilled to be here. Really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. No worries, Chris. See you later. Cheers. Bye.